Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Uh, it is the 20th of July today. I don't even know. Why do we even say the date at this point? Wait, you know? The 19th. Is it the 20th? Wait, what Well, day? tomorrow's going to be the 20th when it comes oh, out. Oh, I'm right. Not... All right, so here, I, I wanted to talk about something very quickly here, which is that, and we're going to play the clip right here. I didn't know that this existed until this morning. <laughs> Oh, but I want, but I was, it happened last week, so apologies for being late, but I felt like we needed to talk about it. With the understanding that the diversity of this community, as distinct as the Bogodas of the Bronx, as beautiful as the blossoms of Miami, and as unique as the breakfast tacos here in San Antonio. <laughs> Okay, so for those who can hear it, that or didn't know, that is Jill Biden, Dr. Jill Biden, um, talking about speaking at what it seems like some sort of like, I don't know, like gathering, like summit or something like that, right? And mm -hmm. she says that the Latino community is diverse and has a lot of strength within it, right? And that the people within it can be typified by the Bogodas. <laughs> 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 which is actually like you know obviously the right wing completely freaked out and lost their shit over this right because and like all this stuff happened like for example like i think that marco rubio put a photo of a taco bell taco you know after this happened at, on twitter <laughs> and, oh my God. Um, ted cruz had some fun with it and of course all like the chuds you know online were like making fun of it but uh, I th and they all they all caught the second part of it, which she says, you know, you're as unique as the breakfast tacos here in San Antonio. Right. <laughs> but I think that they all skipped over the first part, which is where I assume that she meant to say bodegas of yes, the Bronx. Right. I was <laughs> dying. Is bogodas any? Is, is that a Bogota? thing? <laughs> <laughs> also, so she like she has a speechwriter, right? I'm so confused. Uh, okay, well, that's what we're going to talk about. That's actually what I'm interested in, which is the question of do they have speechwriters right now? Look, I don't want to make too much of this because I think it's I just thought it was really funny, you know, it's like really funny. And look, like if somebody like it always you always bring up these sort of like counterfactuals in your ad where you're just like, well, what if somebody on the right had said this about AOC or something like that? Right. Like. <laughs> Would people freak out? The answer is yes. You know, mm -hmm. of course, everyone would freak out and call whoever on the right had said the exact same words, totally racist and out of. It was like, it was kind of like people brought this up too, but remember when um, Donald Trump put, took a photo of himself eating, yeah. taco eating taco Yeah, eating taco. Oh my God. And everybody freaked out because he was eating a taco salad and we like said something about like, you know, like, uh, you know, happy Cinco de Mayo or something like that. I forget what it was for. <laughs> but um what is going on with these with these with the white house because like between kamala and look i don't want to pile on kamala too much but these appearances that she's been having are just like they're just kind of embarrassing right um why is she going on television you know like why is she talking to dana bash why is she why is she being sent out to highland park after these tragedies when she clearly cannot handle these moments right like in that um you know i wrote about a bit in my newsletter but i held back a little bit but like you know like my real yeah. sense of this is basically just that like i've never seen somebody in this high of an elected office including w you know like or like dick cheney 
Like I've just never seen someone be so like charmless as as some of the people in this administration. And now, look, I don't know how much this matters, right? But it certainly yeah. isn't great when it seems like the White House can't muster up like one speech without like <laughs> <laughs> screwing something very basic up. I don't know, Tammy. What are, like what's your sense of this? Like, why does this keep happening? Like, I don't how know. do you put in the line of like? Do they not have somebody who could just be like? breakfast tacos huh like yeah maybe let's like uh let's delete that one oh my <laughs> you know God. and it's bodegas i'm just gonna spell it out for you on the teleprompter you know like you can but do, also like, like just like san antonio is a majority latino city and you're just like drawing out like comic book references to like anything latino it's like amazing yeah, yeah. Well, look, the San Antonio Austin area, to be fair, does have a rich tradition of breakfast tacos. But, <laughs> you know. Um, oh, my God. But I now Bogotas. Have... <laughs> but no, the Bronx does not have Bogotas. Also, <laughs> most of the Bogotas are not owned by people who are Latino. It's right? so like, I mean, like, bizarre. it's just such a bizarre it's thing so to bizarre. say. It's like, I feel like there was the Yemeni dudes who own the Bogotas. <laughs> Are part of the like strength, are part of the Latino, are part of the Latino oh strength God. of diversity, or I don't know. I just thought it. I just find it so weird. They were. We were complaining that they were never coming out of the White House, and they had no public face. But then every time they have a public face, it's an absolute disaster. I know. Well, what do you think is going on with Kamala? Because like that's one. Like that's one where I'm just kind of like Kamala has been a very public politician. For 20 years now, yeah. right? Like since she was like the DA of San Francisco, which, you know, as the whole nation knows is like a, is now apparently the most important job in America, you know? Um, <laughs> but uh, kind of like what is going on? Cause like for me, it's, a, it's not even that she won't answer questions. It's that she won't answer questions and somehow also says in her non answer, the one thing that you shouldn't say. Yeah. Right. And so it's almost like it would be better if she was just honest, you know, and that um, and she also just delivers each line with like this. I think that she reads it as being empathetic and thoughtful, but it actually comes across as being like incredibly bored. <laughs> you know, like she's so bored to be there. I don't know, Terry, what do you think is happening with her? I started to think that there was real tension between her and Biden. And so she sort of it's a mixture of phoning it in because she doesn't think she has the political future that she wants. And then just, you know, not having support. I don't know. It's a really bizarre change for her. And, but I have to just conclude that she is dissatisfied with her job now. Well, like it, all this has brought me to a com incredible point that we're going to talk about, which is that I watched, um, as people who listen to the show know, I was no fan of Pete Buttigieg during the last election cycle. In fact, I, one could say that I was hysterically against Pete Buttigieg, right? In a way that sometimes I was like, man, why do I hate this guy so much? You know, let's unpack this. <laughs> but, you know, I've watched Pete Buttigieg because he goes on television. So, and he usually goes on Fox News, right? Which I think is where he's at his best because he's kind of good at like, debating yeah. them and so like pete Buttigieg went on fox news and they were asking him about um would it be do the, does he think it's okay for people to show up outside of restaurants where like for example brett kavanaugh is eating and to protest mm -hmm. 
And Pete Buttigieg really held the line. And he said, that's part of the First Amendment. Of course, they have the right. You know, he also said you shouldn't harass people and you shouldn't, you know, get in their personal space. You shouldn't threaten them. Yeah. But if you're outside of the restaurant and you're protesting when he comes outside, that's part of your First Amendment right. And that any public figure, including Pete Buttigieg, should expect that, you know, and that 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 they should celebrate that in a way. Now, I find that found that to be sadly enough, given right. my haterism for Pete Buttigieg, <laughs> to be the the most spineful thing that's been said by any Democratic elected official at this time. And I wonder, you know, I'm like, was I wrong about Pete? <laughs> I was wondering because a, a few weeks ago I, you said something about him and I was like, I cannot live in a country where Pete Buttigieg is president. And you were like, yes, you can, Tammy. You live through Trump. And I was like, Jay, defending Pete now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look, this take has been percolating for some weeks. It was just yeah. like, I've basically given up on any type of, you know, actual progressive platform and i just want like somebody (laughs) who's not going to embarrass the democrats and who actually might be able to put a you know like say two things you know and i don't know i've actually appreciated that pete was doing this thing where he was defending protesters like when have you ever seen a democratic that's interesting elected official actually sort of make a case that people should have the right to exercise their first amendment rights like you know i don't know i'm alone this is what i've realized him i'm alone here on free speech island you know <laughs> i was gonna say it's like pete Buttigieg going hard on the first amendment is enough to woo jay me. back into the fold <laughs> i was like pete 2024 oh you know high hopes for like high hopes for living i don't know how that song goes but you know i'm, I'm on board i'll do the fucking dance pete you know just talk more about that good lord um all right well we have a uh, we have two things that we are talking about this week, and the first one, look, I don't mean that this show is not going to be like a centrist show from here on out, but the first thing I want to do is I wanted to talk about this piece that uh, Jonathan Chait wrote, and um, it went around quite a bit on social media, and I think that it was an interesting piece in that I felt like there are many people who try every week. I feel like the headline "Joe Biden is a failure," you know, it occurs like once a month, you know. Um, but this one, <laughs> this one, I felt like was an interesting piece. Like, did, what, did you read it, Tammy? I read it. Can you give okay. a little primer on who Jonathan Chait is? Yeah, well, John Chait is, uh, he's sort of the New York magazines. He's a writer at New York magazine. Uh, he writes for the daily intelligencer. Um, he's sort of their daily politics guy, I would say. Yeah. He writes quite a bit. Our friend, uh, friend of the show Tommy Craggs who I don't think shares many of Jonathan Chait's politics has said that Jonathan Chait is like uh, one of the best bloggers in America because mm, he right. is very efficient very clear always has a point and you know mm-hmm. is able to sort of like button up his points pretty well I actually agree with that like I think you know like I don't share Jonathan Chait's politics really either you know nor do I sort of share his sometimes pearl clutching takes about like a uh, college campus, like freakouts or anything like yes, that. Yes, I find him very hard to pin down. I mean, maybe that's good. Maybe that's what you want in a columnist, but I just I, don't I have a sense so. of his worldview. Right. And I, I just like, look, having now done this job for a year mm-hmm. where you have to write this much and having yeah. people scream at me all the time, like <laughs> I have a little more sympathy for the Jonathan Chase of the world than I did a year ago. You know, where I'm just like, look, it's a hard job. 
everyone's always going to be mad at you and sometimes like you know like they're right because you're off your game but then yeah i just say okay you write this bunch a week (laughs) jay are you back into like are you back into buddhism because you're like you're going deep on this compassion thing like (laughs) now john chait i know i know this is my pivot you know (laughs) (laughs) radical compassion or whatever yeah i'm gonna end up being like listen you know the market will solve everything right and uh we should just any type of entitlements are wrong you know um but uh yeah he wrote this article and he's basically there's two things that i want to pull out and i want to talk about it because i want to just to spend a little bit of time for us to talk about this idea that the Democrats are dead, right? Um, and what that actually means. And so one of the quotes from the article is that um, this administration's broad strategy was to use its first major piece of legislation enacted at the crest of Biden's political, political uh, I'm sorry, political capital shortly after he took office to stimulate the economy as it recovered from the COVID recession. Only after that would they craft enduring social reforms. The theory, which seemed logical to many of us at the time, was to first ensure a prosperous economy and then leverage the political benefit of that prosperity to pass permanent social welfare measures. Instead, the American jobs plan overshot, injecting more demand into an already heating economy. It did not cause high inflation, but it exacerbated it. And thus, rather than producing a prosperous economy that gave Democrats more confidence to pass Biden's domestic agenda, it led to a sour inflationary economy that had them running for cover. Um, And then he writes about like something like the enhanced child tax credit, right? In addition to Manchin's lack of support, quote, they believe the payments would prove so popular that the public could demand that they continue and political demand to continue them never materialized, right? And so he's writing mostly about this moment where Biden is trying to enact like the thing that he wanted to enact and that like kind of the world and also maybe even some of his own policies got in the way, right? And that the um, that that's when things started to get derailed. What, what, what do you think about this take, Tammy? I'm not sure what the, I, I guess I'm not sure what the alternative would have been. Chade seems to be saying that the direct, the way I read this is that the direct cash assistance to workers, basically, like in the form of a, unemployment, was perhaps one of the primary drivers of inflation. I think that's what he's alleging and is saying like comparing or that, that it made to, it worse. Yeah. or that it made it worse and comparing that to like a social welfare package that would be like less about cash, more about different kinds of benefits at that time might've been better. I just don't, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I'm not, I, I guess I'm sympathetic with Biden in this. Like, I, I just don't know what, I don't know if he had a lot of alternatives at that point. Right. I, well, I, and I don't think that many alternatives are particularly mentioned except for the do nothing, which is the alternative, right? Or do less, which is would have been the alternative. And I think one of the things we'll never really know at this point, right, is how much were people actually struggling during the end of the, you know, around like 2021 economically, right? There's all this sort of stuff about how like, oh, income inequality grew, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think that, like, it's hard to tell if that's actually true or not, you know? Like, I do think that by some measures, the rich got richer and the poor got poorer, you know? Mm -hmm. But I think by other measures, like, you know, there were no evictions for an extremely long period of time, for example, in a lot of major American cities and states, right? Um, And the poverty, poverty was cut by a Yeah, poverty was cut by huge amounts, right? 
Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, how, what do we make of that moment? Right. Yeah. Like there's like the left, I think will always be like, well, people are really struggling. People are really struggling. You aren't thinking of the essential workers. And then you just think, well, I don't know. Like, it doesn't seem like that narrative is particularly true. If you look at what, like you said, with, with poverty. Right. And so what was Joe Biden reacting to in that moment? And did he make the right reaction? I think is, a, is the question that Chade is is asking at this moment, but, um, yeah. yeah. I guess it seems for me, it seems difficult to measure that causal relationship. And I, but I, I do take, I do take to heart his critique of basically like, we sort of had an opportunity for people who support like a strong welfare state to build some sort of movement around the retention <clears throat> of a lot of these measures. And like we didn't. And so basically that led to a situation where the federal government had these like very blunt basically cash-based instruments. And then the stuff that would be kind of more consistent, like the child care stuff, maybe slightly expanded unemployment, but maybe not as dramatic as at the height of the pandemic, that sort of thing. Like we could have had a movement around that. And maybe by easing those in more slowly, there would have been less inflation. I don't know. I'm not an economist, but um, I, I, yeah. I feel like it, I, I mean, I, yeah, it is, it's just like a very sad lost opportunity, but I also don't know that any of us were in the right frame of mind or shape to build a movement around that. I don't know what that would look like. I don't know how to like express support around very particular policies like that in a public way. Um, yeah, it's hard because it's uh, it's kind of wonky, you know. Yeah. Can can I tell you one of my solutions here? I want you to respond to. It. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Somebody, a lot of people talked about this earlier, but I think they're right. I really do think that the government needs to basically just set up a bank account for everybody, you know. And that they dump money in there. <laughs> and, so, and you get a push alert on your phone being like, your government bank account has $300 more. And then you can transfer it to whatever bank that you want, you know? But like, it's difficult when some of these things are hard to quantify, right? Like, it's difficult yeah. when a tax credit comes up and the people don't really think about it as yeah. cash, right? It's difficult when, I mean, we got our child, you know, for our one child, we got our tax credits, right? And I was just, um, or not tax credit, we got our uh, checks and they came some months and they didn't come some months, you know? Oh, really? And I don't know why. Yeah, like, or maybe we like lost some in the mail or something like that. But it's all very abstract in that sort of way. I just think that like one way of actually just functionally making this a quote unquote movement without having to do like movement work is to just make it more obvious when people more, are benefiting yeah. from it, you know, and like sending out checks in the way that they do, I think is crazy, you know. Um, I don't know. I get, do other people have a link to their direct deposit? I think. A yeah, lot of I, I was going to say right? I got my stimulus payment through direct deposit because I think it was linked to the IRS. Oh yeah, yeah. I yeah. you got your. I don't know. I don't know, but yeah, I think what you're talking. We've. I guess we've talked about this on the show before, but this is like the submerged state theory, I think, right? Where like right. you don't see what good is happening in the public sector. And so you never credit it. And then you think like your politicians don't do anything for you. Right. And it's especially true in the left because like these yeah. are these are kind of wonky things that are happening mm -hmm. and they're small. For some families they're huge. For some families they're not that huge. I think for some families $300 a month per child is a huge, huge deal, right? And for some families it doesn't matter at all, right? But um, to make sure that both the people who need it and both the people who don't necessarily quite need it, like are understanding the benefit of it for the people who do need it. 
I think yeah. you just need more clarity that it's actually happening, right? And that, like, I think that that's sort of what was the problem with what the Democrats were doing, which was that at a time when they really were helping people out, right? They allowed the narrative to be that all these people are facing economic absolute destruction, which some people were, right? Um, and that, like, uh, Jeff Bezos is so much richer than he was before. And just like, look, at some level, I don't really care if Jeff Bezos is much, much richer than he ever was like that has nothing to do with whether or not these impoverished people are facing complete destruction or if they're doing a little bit better than they were, you know, like, and like we, we should answer that question without sort of comparing it to the richest person in the world all the time. And um, I just think that that moment of assessment was lost. Like we still don't really know, right? Like we know that child tax credit helped, right? We know that poverty was caught, right? We know that income inequality by some measures increased, right? We do know that certain billionaires got much wealthier and that certain companies consolidated wealth and even some universities made a ton of money like harvard right um yeah but those two aren't necessarily related except in a macro macro way and i just think that we should probably stop talking about things in that sort of way where it's just but we should be talking about how bajillionaires are getting richer and richer and we're not taxing them right i mean right right Right. Well, that's another Tate point in this piece right and this is the one that i found the most interesting which is that he says that one of the big, big problems that the Democrats have had is that they haven't taxed the rich, right? And he says, um, this is free money on the sidewalk that a handful of Democrats refuse to let their party pick up. And the reason is simply that they listen to rich people rather than economists. <laughs> Which, like, I don't know. I don't, I, I'm against listening to economists in general. I know. But, you know. <laughs> how about they listen to rich people and some economists as opposed to, like, the most big vast majority of democrats right who actually want people to tax the tax this billionaires. is a what surprising th- point <laughs> what, what, what do you think about this point tammy yeah i think he's right i mean i might add i think it's adding to your point about like doing something that's really clear to people i think that's why also on the left you hear people talking about like student debt cancellation or some right. other thing that's just like a very clear fiscal act that affects a lot of households at once that people can tangibly see and is connected to something um, yeah, I was actually pretty surprised to read this in his piece. <laughs> yeah. Well, what, what do you think about canceling student debt? Like, are you like, what's your, what's your sense of that? Like, are you for it or against it? Yeah. So I know that the debate kind of on the left is about like who it benefits, you know, is it a thing that basically would just be for super overeducated people? There's like a racial dynamic to it, et cetera. I'm generally for it. I think it would be a good gesture. Um, I mean, I think even if it were capped out in some way, like just speaking very realistically, um, or like means tested or was means tested to some extent, I mean, I think that would still be a victory for the movement, which has been, you know, basically trying to cancel debt since Occupy. Um, to me, I think it, it seems, and also because Biden can do a lot of it by executive order. I think people are confused as to why he hasn't followed through with the promise. I would say that it, it would be a very positive move right now so that the Democrats have something to show. Yeah. It's interesting because I think that, uh, it's not a particularly popular idea, you know, or it's less popular than people say. And, um, and I don't know, I have some of the same reservations I think that people have about who it would actually benefit. And, who's calling for it and how loud the people who are calling for its voices are compared to the people who are completely unaffected by it because they didn't go to college, you know? 
Um, and I don't think that there's a need to do this type of zero sum game where you say, well, that money could be used for X right now. Yeah, like, if you could it. make an argument being like, oh, they should make community college free, you know, yeah. and uh, that money for student cancel debt cancellation should go to community college. You have Definitely. to pick one. I would pick community college every day of the week, you know, um, but I, I don't know. I, I don't think that it's, I don't know. I just like, I can't really wrap my head around. I like, I, I, I feel that it will improve the lives of many people. And I think that for that reason, they should probably do it and release people from debt, but like a one-time cancellation of, of debt, um, and sort of, you know, like, will that, will that yeah. make the Democrats, uh, prospects any better? I don't think so. <laughs> you know? Yeah, like, so. I think it's, well, I mean, yeah, I think to be durable, it would have to do what you were just saying, which is be connected to a larger movement to have free education. Right. You know, it's basically education. giving a taste of a model of something that you are committing yourselves to longer term. That would be the idea, I think, behind it. Right. But the Democrats have really run from that type of thing, right? <laughs> I mean, I saw this like... Like Harvard is now requesting the tiny, tiny amount of tax that they have to pay um, on their endowment be canceled. They're like requesting, oh they're asking the Senate Democrats for that. Like if the Senate Democrats pass that, you know, and um, and then Biden rubber stamps the can't, the tax breaks for like Harvard, I'm going to flip out. <laughs> I'm going to vote for Ross. I'm voting for Ross Perot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna go right past Pete Buttigieg. I'm going like straight down. He's like Ross Perot. Where's your gravestone? Be like, you were right. Your charts are right. Oh my god! <laughs> like I can't handle these people anymore. Why are they giving a tax break? To, why are they giving a tax break? To, or I'll go so for Jill. Or I'll vote for Jill Stein. I don't care. You know, like Ugh, I mean, like that's I gonna how be how much like, we have to talk about, about Harvard. What the hell? No, I know. And like, why it's they so like? Sucky. Why is that a thing that people are talking about? You know, like oh, oh maybe Harvard's taxed. <laughs> their tax it's like 0.01 percent of their endowment is what they have to pay in taxes i mean it's embarrassing you know um anyway um i i i don't know i i think that the 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 part that i found interesting about all this and the reason why i want to talk about it mostly was that one thing right like how do we build a culture now of saying tax the rich like what more could we possibly do on the left to ask democratic leadership to do this i mean like look you can laugh at certain things like aoc's dress at the met gala or whatever right but that was a big part of the last election cycle yeah. right it really was between like elizabeth warren between bernie right between even even like uh even joe biden talking about all of this like everybody talked about increasing taxes and the problem with wealth inequality in this country and that some people have way too much money Right. And we're now two years into it and we haven't done anything, a thing. Right. And like this is a massive failure. And I just a I can't explain it. I think in the same I feel befuddled in the same way that Chate feels befuddled by it. It's like, why wouldn't you just do this? Yeah. You know, um, and then I also just think from a movement standpoint or from a left standpoint, like, well, what can we do at this point? You know, like we have no power like. uh like Aside can, from Occupy, do you think there's been any public showing around economic inequality on the scale, on like a mass public scale? Like in the sense of, okay, obviously 2020 Black Lives Matter was the largest uprising in American history, but there were other things like in 2006, the immigrant rights, 
marches right. and stuff. But have there has there ever been something like that besides Occupy around economics? Well, no, Street but I will showing, say I that people who are sympathetic towards things like Occupy, right, are now in the media yeah. in at a rate that they've never been before. You know, it's I mean, true. it's crazy, right? And like, and they've had a massive amount of influence to the point where New York magazines, you know, like sort of moderate Democrat is hammering Joe Biden for not taxing the rich, right? Um, and they've had a enormous, I think, amount of influence in that, you know, like the reason why Jonathan Chait thinks that the Democrats should do this is because it would be popular to do so, right? And I yeah. think that that's true too. And so I think the strange thing is that like that idea has succeeded in every single way except for convincing the politicians to actually do it, you know? And that's the part where like, you know, like, I don't know how much influence that we would have to have, right? Um, the only way that we could do it is to, you know, elect another Bernie figure or something like that. But it, it, it's interesting because it, in the way that it influences any sort of theory of change around this, right? Which is just like, we can do every single thing, but really maybe we should just like try and elect the guy that would actually do it, you know? And oh maybe God. Joe Biden just wasn't that guy. So you don't think that a street movement would help because that that sort of public sentiment is already known and it is expressed. Yeah. And I also have a hard time seeing what it would even look like in 2022. You know, yeah. like, what does it look like if it's not just a rehash of what already existed? And then who are you trying to really convince? Um, who it, what is like the opposition of it? Right. Um, and you know, how does it not sort of fall into a type of right wing adjacent populism um, right. that because the people who are talking about that the most right now are the right, you know, and yeah, I think this is why people like, you know, so Amari or whoever are interested in this idea of trying to see if there is this moment where like sort of a right wing populism can be merged with like, you know, like some of the remnants of like the Bernie movement, right? Um, cause like they could probably do it, but I don't oh, think like progressives can do it, you know, like, I don't know. I just think that I don't even know what that would look like. Right. I don't think the yeah. left can do it at all. Um, seems like the Dems are also freaked out that by saying tax cuts for the rich people are going to hear it as like threats to their jobs and everyone feels so insecure and they're already under stress for the midterms, but it's so ridiculous and I don't know how to, Yeah. I think it's extremely frustrating to do economic rights organizing. And I don't know, <laughs> I guess, I guess the way that expresses itself in some sense is like through housing activism, you know, through, right. through sort of like goods oriented activism, as opposed to some larger thing around taxation or redistribution. Yeah. And housing activism, you know, I don't know. Uh, it's interesting, like, you know, like, is is there a possibility to do, like, the rent is too high type of movements, you yeah. know, but, um, which I think in New York City, a lot of people are feeling, like, what's going on For with sure. rent in New York? Why is it, is it, why is it so high right now? If, you know, I mean, everyone has, crazy. like, different theories about it, but it seems like it's I totally know. out of control right now, right? Um, yeah, you hear reports just, I mean, from friends, and I get some emails occasionally from strangers, like, talking about how their rent is going up by 50%. Yeah, I heard. And at market rate, you have too. nothing to be say about it, right? You don't have a right, right. to reduction. Right, fifty percent. Oh my god. Yeah. What are those people doing? Are they like moving out of New York City? Yeah, I think they're moving. The they're moving farther afield or getting roommates. 
Oh. More roommates than they already have. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Well, I don't know. Was there anything last that you want to say about this? Like, wh- what's your assessment of this right now? Like, you know, like, where are we, right? Because one of the other things that is factoring into this is whether or not the, whether or not, you know, Dodd or Roe or whatever you want to call it, right? Like abortion rights are going to, are going to make things okay for the Democrats. Um, And we should probably define what okay means, right? It just means that they don't get wiped off the map during the midterms and that Biden doesn't become even more of a lame duck president and that we don't have Ron DeSantis or Donald Trump as the president and have like a, Republican Senate, a Republican um, House, and a Republican Supreme Court that's going like, to be crazy. I know. You know? Like, I don't know. And that basically everything at this point needs to be marshaled towards making sure that that doesn't happen. I think that's true. Yeah. You know, like, I think that this is one of the points where I can be like, whatever, an incre- not even incremental, it's just like a disaster, catastrophe <laughs> preventer. But um, I don't know. I also just kind of think, well, I don't know. Well, what can we actually do? I feel like for me, I'm seeing two countervailing things. Like on the one hand, I think people who are especially much younger than us are thinking that they've given up on electoral politics altogether because they don't think for the same reasons that we just discussed with the Jade article that any of the things they actually want or that they think society needs can be delivered through electoral politics. They really do think there is such a defeated generation, basically, of people who are kind of done. But on the other hand, I do think that the abortion situation is going to lead a lot of people to do electoral politics this year, even though they don't want to, especially thinking at the governor's level, because yeah, the federal elections matter, but I think the hope of getting like a federal law that protects abortion probably is quite low. And people are thinking just in very like emergency terms about preventing the full ban on abortion in their particular states. So they're trying to get democratic governors. So I think I'm curious, like what's going to win out this fall? Yeah, well, one, you know, there's this article by Nate Cohn in the Times, and he was analyzing that New York Times Siena poll that came out, mm-hmm. right, which said that Biden had a 33% approval rating, and that basically, like, nobody wanted him to run again, right? And that one of the findings in that, which uh, is that basically, okay, it says 13% of registered voters said America was headed in the right direction, which, you know, honestly seems kind of high to me, like... <laughs> so sad this place is so Uh, messed up um only 10 percent of the economy said the economy is excellent or good and a majority of voters said the nation was too politically divided to uh solve its problems right um mr biden still led mr trump in a hypothetical 2024 matchup 44 percent to 41 percent but what was surprising was that 10 percent of respondents volunteered that they would not vote at all or would vote for someone else if those were the two candidates, even That's though so the interviewer crazy. didn't yeah. opt. That's the part that I'm most curious about, right? Like whether or not people are just going to shut down, right? And that, yeah. um, now I think that like uh, there will be a mobilization of women who are going in states where abortion is on the ballot, basically, yeah, to yeah. vote. But man, I don't know, you know, like you can say like solidarity, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're like a woman in Oregon, for example, right, and you're just sort of pissed off about everything, or if you're in, I don't know, even like Pennsylvania, right, or or, um, Minnesota or Michigan or wherever, it's just hard, you know, it's hard to get excited. It's hard to be shamed all the time into it. That's essentially what, you know, is happening yeah. right now, which is just like, if you don't do it, then uh, everything's going to collapse. And I think for a lot of people, they're just going to be like, actually, 
I'm kind of good. I'm like a middle-class white person, you know, like none of this affects me. And like, I lived through the Trump era. And if I just turned the news off, my life was more or less the same. And uh, I'm kind of getting sick of you scolding me all the time. (laughs) Right. And that while that type of person, I don't think Mm. we can characterize as particularly sympathetic in a way. There are a lot of them, you know, there are a lot of people who fit in that. And I just wonder if those people are just me, you know, I like, I'm, I'm not worried about like, you know, people on the extreme left who are just like, I'm not going to vote, you know, because uh, communism, I just don't care. <laughs> like, I, like, I don't think that many of those people exist. And I think all those people end up voting anyway for Joe Biden. <laughs> You know, they'll all vote for Joe Biden because they're politically engaged people, right? But I think it's less those people and it's people who are having a hard time making it, but they feel like there's no one who's going to fight for them. Right, right. And those are different. That's another group, yeah. That's scary to me. And I mean, I know that certain, it seems like the Republicans are not concerned that abortion will actually sway any votes this this fall. Um, I think it's going to take a ton of work to make that happen. I do think there are pockets certainly where that is going to be a problem though for the republicans yeah and the the last part of this that i think we should talk about is like the you know like i i don't know what to even make of this anymore right but basically every single data person agrees that um and every sort of political scientist agrees right now that what we have right now is that democrats appeal to well-educated voters republicans appeal to voters without a college degree this is true, consistent across all race, all types of ethnic, you know, whatever, right? And that this just keeps getting worse, right? Like the gap gets worse and worse and worse. Now, there are ways that Democrats and people on in moderates sort of say, you can stop that by stop saying Latinx, you know, or, and stuff like that, right? Now, I don't know, like, do you think any of that's true? Like, I used to not think it's true, but now I'm starting to like waver a little bit like do you do you think there is some sort of messaging problem that's contributing to this at all well the thing i was confused about in shade and that i've seen a lot of places elsewhere is that they're saying that the democrats are leaning on identitarian thing type language or you know quote unquote like elite concerns in an absence of actually having like an economic platform I guess I don't feel like they have a platform on any of those issues. Right, I agree. Like yeah. in some ways, I think that it's a little bit overinflated how people are like, oh, the Dems just talk about like trans issues and, you know, like Latin, Latinx stuff. And I, I don't even see that. Like I don't even I don't really either. know what they're talking about when they do that. Like actually, if they had a kind of like sophisticated identitarian platform that might actually be interesting, I don't even, <laughs> I'd be curious what they have to say about it. I feel like it's maybe more of a, matter of perception or people are conflating like elite media representations with what the Dems care about. I think that's what it is. Yeah. Okay. Or, and I, I don't even think it's elite media representations. I think it's that basically everyone has fallen for the GOP and Fox news yeah. trick. Now, if you think, yeah. if you actually assessed what is happening, you would think that like Joe Biden himself, you know, uh, made like a swimming team, that right. would represent the I United see. States values. And his first pick in the swimming team draft was Leah Thomas out of the University of Pennsylvania. That's literally what people think, right? Like that's yeah, how they think. Now they don't think that any of those things actually happen, but that's yeah. how much influence they think that Joe Biden and the Democrats have over Leah Thomas, right? Gotcha. Now it turns, I think that actually what has happened is that none of the Democratic moderate leadership 
will say a word about Leah Thomas, right? Yeah. And that's because they don't want to talk about it, right? Because they think that it's going to be unpopular and they think it's going to make them seem like they're like, you know, uh, in the thrall of identitarian concerns or whatever like that, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, does Joe Biden ever say the word Latinx? No, I've never heard him say the word I know. Latinx. <laughs> you know, are there memos that sometimes come out of his office that have the word Latinx? I think there was one, you know, and then everyone had like their day about it. And so there's this conflation that's going on, right? Like, and that, like, this is not a particularly perceptive, like, take, but basically yeah, yeah. the right wing has won in terms of attaching all of these things to every single Democrat. Gotcha. Um, yeah. And that some of them are. Like, I don't know, I was thinking a lot about Latinx this week because I published this interview with uh, Natasha Waraku and, it, you know, her book's oh, yeah. great. It's about how, like, Asian Yeah, it looks interesting. Are, um, and, like, uh, suburban places are being responded to when they start dominating the academics there and how white families respond to that, right? Now, mm-hmm. Natasha uses the word, uses the term Latinx, right? Um, and because we were having a conversation, I just published it in piece right yeah and i was wondering like if it was like limiting the reach of scholars like herself to use that term you know um, but what, what would she if use it does instead? classify latino hispanic i don't know you oh know? just um mm-hmm. but not latinx right um if it does actually limit things right and mm-hmm. limit the reach of that type of messaging i think it definitely does like i don't think that's really debatable right like um there are people who are going to just be turned off by that right hmm. um but i do think that that number is probably much smaller than people think but it probably does have some effect but like uh you know then you just have to ask yourself well what's the point of using term like latinx right like does anyone like you know like are the concerns real um and mm-hmm. I think that what has basically happened is that like the right wing has allowed, has taken like every single one of those little examples, mushed yeah. them all together, and then just kind of like chained it to the foot of the Democratic Party, right? And right. that um, they're just going to have to lug it around because like, you know, they're not going to condemn, like, you know, they're like the idea that they should do like a sister soldier moment, you know, <laughs> and Joe Biden would be like, I say Latino, you know, oh my God. not not that poppycock Latinx. You know, like come <laughs> on. You know, do you really want to? Do, do you really want to do that? Or like, I don't know. Do you think he should do that? I don't know. I guess it's an actual question. You know, like should he do? Should he be like Ibram X? I I, I remember, do you remember we had that? <laughs> do you remember we had that moment where we were fantasizing about whether Joe Biden should denounce anti-racist baby? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. Yeah. Is that why he sent his wife to be like Bogata? <laughs> Bog- <laughs> Bogata. <laughs> He's like, I'm so politically incorrect that I'm gonna just say Bogata. <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I don't know. Man, that is so I, well, what, what do you think about that? Like, because it's all culture war stuff, right? And like, yeah, I yeah. think, like, is there? Can you think of any economic or larger reason why this type of? Uh, education polarization is happening no right no because it's a totally fringe and manufactured issue so you know right and they also like it's not i I think that some people would be like well you know like some of those working class people are pretty racist you know and they're like i don't know about that you know i know a lot of racist college educated people (laughs) with really fancy degrees they're super fucking racist you know (laughs) yeah i don't know 
I mean, I guess in some ways it's an, it's like an international problem. Like you see it in so many other countries too, where basically people pick up on, you know, historical education, right. Or some other thing, the right wing is upset about any sort of historiography, you know, reclamation project or um, a sort of reassessment of a legacy. And the Republicans here are just calling everything that falls under that CRT right, and connecting right. it to Biden. <laughs> right. And just throwing it right in Biden's face. Yeah. You know? Just like they did with Kentaji, Brown Jackson. Right. Like, oh, my gosh. The school where you're a board member teaches anti-racist baby. Do you think babies are racist? And you're like, oh. Was, I can't even <laughs> believe that that happened. And I don't. What is it like for her going into this? Court, like, oh my god, it's what a nightmare. Anyway, yeah. How many days do you think? How many good days do you think she had before she was like, whoa? (laughs) (laughs) Because you, you know, like when you you, when you start at a job and like the first few days you're excited and you're like, oh my god, my key card works, you know? Um, and then and then you're just like, and then you're by how and then by at some point you're just like, okay, you know, I don't care about this cafeteria anymore. Can you imagine the split in the cafeteria for real, though? The tables are just like. Well, apparently Sotomayor, you know, is really great friends with Clarence Thomas or whatever. I know. I hear that. But you're just like, how in the hell? Whatever. The whole fucking thing needs to be Maybe they have a minority slack, you know, at the Supreme (laughs) Court. And it's just. Yes, Brown's like, oh, I don't know if I'm gonna join this one. <laughs> you know, she got she gets the invite from Sotomayor and Clarence Thomas to join, to oh join the God. Supreme Court. POC Mind Slack. POC Slack. And she's like, the BIPOC no, Slack at uh, Scotus. I'm, I'm good. Yeah, the BIPOC Slack at Scotus. I'm just oh not gonna God. join. Like, what are we gonna do? We're talking about like Amy Cody Barrett's hair or something. Like it's that. so amazing. <laughs> Oh my god! Can you I, look if that if that slack exists? I would pay ten thousand dollars to have access oh to god. read it every single day. That's the next were. leak I want to see. <laughs> it would be oh man! All right. Anyway, okay. Let's talk about drugs. Um, okay, Tammy, this is your topic that you chose. We all <laughs> chose a topic today. I just wanted to bash the Democrats. What do you want to talk about? <laughs> Well, I was curious, this seems completely random, but there's a new documentary series on Netflix based on Michael Pollan's most recent book, which is a few years ago, but feels very fresh because I think he has contributed in starting this sort of larger discourse around psychedelics and drugs um, generally in our society. Now, you can watch this show and it you, it definitely feels like a Bay Area project because it's mostly like white people indulging in shrooms. Listen, um, he lives like very close to me. He like, does. Do you see him around there. town? I don't know what he looks like, but okay. I'm face blind basically um, when it comes to walking around. Like I, I can't recognize anybody. Like, I Except walk for by. the people at the Avakian store. Well, yeah, uh, yeah. I think if Bob Baker walked in my house, I'd know who he was. But um, Michael Pollan, no, I'd be like, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, I was, I was watching it, and I was thinking about you know drugs discourse in this country because in some ways I'm wondering about. Well, first of all, we're still in the middle of a continuing opioid epidemic. I think we have to acknowledge that. And right. hundreds of thousands of people have died from overdoses and suicides related to opioids over these decades. Um, and fentanyl. You know, and, and fentanyl. Which is like a real problem, you know. Totally. Know we like yeah. to make fun of it when police officers like, you know, 
pretend, you know, like have these dramatic responses to touching it. But I don't know. It's a real problem. I mean, it's a real problem. Yeah. I think we have to, you know, but on the, on the other hand, we're seeing some kinds of drug liberalization, like I think almost an across the board, slightly bipartisan reevaluation of the drug war, right? Like growth in injection sites, things like that, where, and obviously like the legalization of marijuana in lots of different states that are Republican states. And, um, right. And so I'm just, yeah, I was thinking about like, okay, does, is this like an issue that people care about? Is this something that could matter for the midterms? But more importantly, like what, how do we see like this evolving, the evolving role of drugs in our society and in law enforcement? Um, you know, I think part of it too is, I, I feel that Republicans cynically or like conservatives cynically are basically throwing a bone toward society <clears throat> by saying that they are okay with marijuana legalization and that they're like softening up on some of this stuff so that they can still be extremely carceral in everything else that they do. Right. But also they probably, some of them probably smoke weed. And probably, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's true. Um, Well, I don't know. You know, like I I think outside of the electoral issues, right? Like I think that from a broader societal standpoint that um, we are in a place where I think people are just kind of waving everything through, right? It's like a Black Thursday or what's the day after Thanksgiving, Black Friday? Black Friday. Yeah. Black Friday. Right. And like, we're like a TV store with TVs and people just running through, right? Like there's some of that going on now. There are some counterexamples. So for example, you know, the new DA in San Francisco, Brooke Jenkins, who replaced Jason Boudin, it's like ridiculous. Like they found like, like London Bree basically hired the opposite of Jason Boudin. Just like, and like, I I think it's going to be interesting because I actually think that people don't want this. Like they don't like people in San Francisco. Like you can say, like they yes, they recall Chase Boudin, you know, um, and uh, they are probably very sick of petty crime going on in the city, right? Which um, you can say isn't happening, but like I don't know, come on, you know, like it's happening, right? But it's always happened, and now there's a little bit more of it, and it's very public because it's always on caught on social media, and um, mm-hmm. that contributes yeah. to a fear of crime. But that's a real thing that you have to deal with, right? Homelessness is a you know. I don't know. It's very visible. It's worse than it was 10 years ago. I don't think anybody reasonable would say that that's not true either. But the idea that you're going to start locking people up for drug offenses. No, like the, the public in that city doesn't want that. You know, And that's no, what she's saying already. That. Oh, yeah. She's like, we're going to revisit some of these ideas. It's <laughs> like, oh I don't gosh. think you are. You know, um, I don't think you are because like they're the, what people people don't want people to go to jail for drug crimes you know what they want is for people to stop breaking into cars right or for the homeless to go away basically no but don't they but connect that to homelessness don't they think like the homeless guys are the ones who are going to do drugs and steal my car and so drugs are a way to get them like is that a thing that could destroy this general liberalization trend well i, I don't i i think there's a limit maybe i'm naive but i just think there's a limit like that's i know good. that's a, like i wrote my last piece about this about how yeah why i think like people should think about in terms of civil liberties right because i think from a civil liberties way there's a definite point now should we be kind to criminals way no i don't think that there's a limit you know i think people will be as carceral as they will be but i think if you ask them like should america be this way and should people's freedoms be impinged in this way and are you worried about your own freedoms and yeah i think that some people will respond right like mm-hmm. people shouldn't go to jail for it. no one thinks anyone I don't think any person really believes at this point in America, except for a very small minority, for example, that people should go to jail for five years for marijuana right. possession or dealing, right? Like it's very hard to find that person, which is part of the trend that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, I, I think we're in a moment where basically everybody's kind of closing their eyes and hoping that everything goes okay, you know? Um, now, I will share a surprisingly conservative take that I have about this, which is that I think we have gone a little bit too far with all of this, you know, not in terms Around of weed? the criminal justice system, but in terms of like not of pretending that like all drugs are fine, you know, like sort of the cultural standard of it. Now, I oppose any type of like criminalization of any type of drug where people go to jail for possession of it, right? Like, I think that that's all, like, you shouldn't go to jail for possession of any type of drug, right? And, but um, I don't know, you know? I think about this all are the time. Are you talking, of, what are you talking about in general? Like, the, the kind of I'm Carl even talking about weed. school of, oh, just. Yeah, like, I think that, like, basically, look, I just think that, like, there are strains of weed in their ways that weed is smoked right now where, like, you know, there probably should be some sort of thought put into how it's uh, affecting people, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's not like, I don't think that smoking like a joint of normal weed is ever, every single day is really going to harm anybody, you know, and probably will help many people, right? But like, weed is really powerful now, you know, like weed edibles mm-hmm. are sold as candy for kids. You know, there's all these instances of children sort of getting into and, we, and like some of that stuff should be regulated, right? Like they should make different types of packaging. They should do minimal, minimal regulation. But right now they don't do anything, right? Because everybody's just like, oh, if you say anything like that, you're, you know, you're a narc or something like that. But I don't know. I think there should be small amounts of regulation on, on how weed is sold. There should be some studies and like maybe some thoughts about that, right? And when it comes to stuff like what Pollen is talking about in terms of psychedelics or whatever, right? I do think that there should be more thought about how they can be um, psychologically or psychiatrically beneficial to people, which is what his yeah. documentary is about. Right. I believe with all, I agree with all of that, but like, I don't think they should like sell LSD at the liquor store. <laughs> you know? like, but I, I mean, be- no, but like if you go to a weed store, like it is tightly regulated. No, I mean, I'm only familiar with the marijuana stores in, in Washington, but they, it's like pretty tight. Like you have to show your ID. They go through all this stuff. Like there's clear labeling in terms of dosage, all this stuff. It's not like it's just vended on the street. I don't know. I mean, you know, like I don't think that it's particularly well regulated. I think especially the edible stuff is like, you know, like selling it is so that it looks like candy and selling it in like basically the same packaging that like a Starburst comes in. I don't know. I think that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> you can call me really? but like a like kid that. can't buy that like you have to be yeah but a kid can find it in his parents house and he, it happens all the time you know? i guess so but that's true of everything right like alcohol cigarettes they can all cigarettes don't look like candy and there yes. is regulation on on cigarettes right um i don't know yeah I but i think it's similar for weed i mean um that's well, interesting I though i don't know i guess I'm not, I guess I haven't been too worried about kids getting into their parents' weed candy, but maybe this but is it's a, a problem. Concern. You should look it up. You know, the reason okay. why it's not really discussed very much, like the state of Vermont, for example, is exploring regulations on that, you know, because it's happened so much. And okay. um, I don't know, like having like a young child who is in a catatonic state because they've eaten too much weed, like it's not a pleasant yeah. experience, I imagine. I guess because, yeah, I'm not around that many kids. I guess I hadn't right. thought about it. Um, <laughs> And so I would say at the very least, they should regulate edibles in that sort okay, of way. Okay, fair enough. Right? Um, 
And I also just think that like, I don't know, like, I just think that there's like the sort of, I, I, I will admit I am a little bit disturbed by the amount of callousness there is to the fentanyl problem in the country right yeah. now. You know, like, it's like people are dying every single day all over the country because of this thing, you know? Um, like, you know, I had that interview with Sam Canonis. Like, I think right. Sam Canonis is wrong still. I don't think that like, you know, I don't think that like new forms of meth are leading to psychosis that leads to homelessness. I don't, I reject that completely. Yeah, but yeah. is meth good? <laughs> like, is it good to have that much meth on the street and people using? No, of course it's not good, right? Like, I think yeah. it's crazy to argue that that's okay, you know? And so, um, you know, I think that on the left, our general argument would be like, well, we should have like a place where everybody has economic comfort so that they can experiment with these drugs and use these drugs without, uh, in the same way that stockbrokers use cocaine. It doesn't completely derail their life and that, you know, it's, uh, it's done recreationally. I think that's true, you know, but like in the meantime, well, like all, I don't know. I just think that like, that basically this idea of let's close our eyes and everybody and everything will be fine and that we shouldn't think about any of it. And that anyone who says, I don't know, you know, I don't know. I, I just find it a Is little that bit disturbing. That's interesting that that's your perception of the discourse. Like, I don't think we've come that far yet, actually. I think you don't that, think that that's a discourse that that's why the opioid academic was sort of ignored, though. Oh, that's interesting. No, I don't actually. I do. I do. I think it really. Was, yeah, because I, I think, think it was that, ignored because it's a part of the population that a lot of people don't care about, like mostly like affecting poor people who were caught in those pill mill areas. Right. But um, I also think it's because the same people who don't care about them also have pretty permissive ideas about drug use, you know, like they don't, they don't like think they just think that drug use is like them smoking weed on the weekends. Right. Which would be fine. But, you know, I don't know, like how many people uh, have to die of these things to, for it to be, no, I think it's say to talk about it. Right. Totally. I mean, I think it is a major, like, obviously it's a major public health problem at the same time. I think like the people who are interested in drug liberalization or at least different kinds of regulation to that would like lead to a less criminalized form of drug regulation um, are thinking that in a way these ideas are connected. Like if you can have a situation where you're talking about drug use, where there is some sort of just popular and sort of regular examination of drug use, maybe you don't get in a situation like we have with the opioid epidemic or we had with previous epidemics. So like if people were able to use like morphine or heroin instead of using Oxycontin? I think it's people could, I mean, potentially people could use those drugs recreationally. I think some people support that. I don't know if I'm as into that idea, but I think it's the idea that if we have a society where drugs aren't immediately criminalized and sort of shunned, you can have more of a conversation about drugs. You can like, there's more visibility about people's drug use. We know more about what people are doing and you have less of a situation where people are using in basically the dark corners of our society. And then, and that leads to overdoses. Right. I don't know. I guess I would have more sympathy for that if I felt like the dark corners were some sort of inherent thing that was intrinsic to the country and not just what people in the media decided to care about. Right. Um, yeah. And uh, given that that dark corner is like at this point, you know, at least with the opioid epidemic, it's the people that like everyone says, oh, well, people only care about like 
lower middle class white people in the middle of the country or something like that. I don't care about them at all. It's like, well, no, we don't care about them at all. You know? <laughs> do we care about them or do we too no, much we or don't. do we not care about them at all? I think we okay. don't care about them at all because like they were just dying off in massive numbers because of the opioid yeah. epidemic and nobody cared, you know? Um, I mean, it is nobody. interesting that we, when we talk about like the white working class without a BA, which is like the category of sociological right. analysis right now, we don't really connect that to the opioid epidemic. I totally agree with you on that. Um, I think my, but I think my perception of like where we are in terms of like general drug acceptance is pretty different than where you think we are at. Really? Okay. So in what way though? I'm interested in, in that. Um, just that I actually think like these ideas of like injection sites and like people thinking about like casual, more casual drug use that is like accepted in our society. I think that's like a very minority opinion that is like. No, I agree with that. Finished. I agree. Injection oh, okay. sites. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 But I even just, met, just like casual drug use, I don't think like a lot of people think that that is like, okay. And I'm also not, I should say like, I am very inexperienced with drugs. Like I basically have not done any drugs, but just in terms of like, as a public policy matter, like I've been interested in drug liberalization. I just don't yeah. see it really talked about or popularized. Maybe that's part, I don't know. Maybe that's part of it. You know, much of my 20 is spent in a drug induced stupor. You know, and I've done <laughs> yeah. every single one of these drugs. <laughs> And uh, I don't, you know, like, I don't know, like, I, I think that all the arguments are generally correct. Like, I think alcohol is, you know, just as bad as many of these drugs, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And like, we don't like all the contradictions and all the sort of paradoxes and, and silly, you know, whatever, like, ways in which we think about it are all true. But I, there's just something that do, I can't even really quantify. It. I don't feel like I can explain it particularly clearly. But there is something that bothers me about some of the callousness towards the some of the problems that can happen from mm. from addiction on, in these areas that really doesn't really that that disturbs me a little bit. Like okay. fentanyl, I don't know, man. Yeah. Go down to one of these tent places in the Bay Area, right? Yeah. Um, just pick up a newspaper at some point, right? Like, there are people dying all the time, you know, and um, there are people dying because they get cocaine cut with fentanyl, you know, yeah. there are people who are dying of all sorts of stuff. And uh, just to sort of be like, ha ha, anyone who thinks about it as a narc or that we should or that we need to wait for like some sort of massive redistribution of wealth to fix it, which isn't going to fix it because the opioid epidemic kind of proved that, you know, um, yeah. all sorts of people got hooked on opioids. It's true. Uh, you know, I don't know. I just find it naive, you know, and I, it, it just bothers me. I don't know. You can call me yeah. a narc. It's okay. You can, the headline at the end of this podcast is like, Jay Hang is now a moderate Democrat narc. I, I was going to say, <laughs> Jay's voting for Pete and hates all drugs. Hates all drugs. <laughs> we should lock up anyone who's caught with math, you know. Um, no, I mean, like, that's. I don't know. I, 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 my idea for this, right, which I was going to actually write as a column, but I'm definitely not going to mm -hmm. write as a column, was that um, somebody should go in the, sh should invent dad weed. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> okay, so dad weed is like, <laughs> it's just weed that is similar to the time when the dad was 17 years old, you know? And so for me, it would be like what weed was like in 1997, right? And so it's much, you know, it looks exactly the same as the weed did back in the day. And so it's sorted by year, by decade, basically, because you couldn't do it by year, right? So for me, I'd be like in my 40s. So it'd be like exactly the type of weed that was sold in the late 90s. 
and that you could just smoke it, you know, without having to worry about it being too strong, you know? Cause like when I talk to other dads who smoke weed, you know, like we talk, like it's just that the weed is too <laughs> you strong. You have a club? <laughs> well, no, but I mean, look, a lot of people smoke weed. I, I live in a state where weed is legal, right. you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, everyone who is my age thinks the weed is too strong, you know? That's and so really like they should okay. make dad weed right now. Everyone's going to write and be like, they already have that. It's called XY. It's not called dad weed. It's a branding exercise. <laughs> <laughs> so um, oh my God. dadweed.com, you know, I don't know. I feel like if I started this company, I'd become rich. Like, I just think that there's a huge market demand. Like nobody really likes oh this super God, powerful weed, you know, that they're making. And they just keep making it because it's efficient to make it. I guess it's probably cheap to make it or whatever. And maybe like some people enjoy it, but I don't know, you know, like sometimes you just want to smoke like a gigantic blunt full of crappy weed, right? <laughs> like you did when you were 17 and then just chill out. Right. And then like 15 minutes later, you'll get a massive headache because the weed is so bad. <laughs> you know, like, go down to style with me, oh you know, let's God. just do it. Dad weed. Um, Anyway, that's my big idea for the day. I was hoping that I could slide that in. Yeah, I mean, who needs drugs? subscribers when you can just sell dadweed.com? That's I know, we're gonna, I know. That's how we're going to go out on the show. <laughs> Nobody steal this idea. It's copyrighted, you know? <laughs> well, it's not actually, but, you oh know, like God. it's like one of my better ideas. It's just that, look, um, I don't know. I just, look, these are old art. Um, these are old opinions. So anyway, what did you think in the end yeah. about this sort of idea, right? Like, um like, where do you think we are with drugs here? Yeah, I think I think my takeaway from the series and just from the thoughts that percolated from the series are still that the series does really nothing to divide, I think, what still persists in our society, which is like a divide between good drugs and bad drugs, hard drugs and soft drugs, essentially, and all of the class and sort of race connotations that come with all that stuff. And um, But yeah, I guess I would say that um, it's interesting to have that sort of discourse and yet not talk really at all about all the people who are dying still from the continuing opioid epidemic. So there's yeah. there's like basically these like slotted conversations that don't actually ever overlap with each other. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was my takeaway. I think, I think that, I don't know, maybe they should be slotted, right? Like do we, like maybe the issue with the opioid epidemic really is Purdue Pharma, right? Of course, that should be the majority yeah. of the conversation yeah. about it, right? But um, I don't know, you know, like um, I, I just think that there's like the, I, I see it with the homeless discourse quite a bit, right? Where it's like, oh, nobody in these places is using drugs, right? These sort of tent encampments. It's like, it's just not true. Now, are all of them? No. You know, are most? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe more than not, or maybe half and half or whatever. Does it depend entirely on site? Are there places where like, it's literally just families living in RVs because they can't afford an apartment? Yes. You know, like the homelessness problem is yeah. huge, right? But in the places that people talk about, right, where it's like, in the Tenderloin, for example, um, is there drug use going on there? Yeah, of course. Does that drug use exacerbate problems? Yeah, it exacerbates problems. You know, is that is it good for those people to be dying of fentanyl? No, it's not good to be dying of fentanyl. I, I just don't understand why we can't say that type of stuff. Do you, you think? Know? I mean, in some ways, it sort of mirrors the general conversation I think around like homeless tent encampments too, where 
it's like there's pressure on the left side to basically say like, oh, leave them all and it's good and let people right. live however they want. Right. Right. Um, I think because, yeah, maybe it's what you were saying with like a little bit of overshooting because you're so afraid of what's going to happen if you don't take that. I don't think it's a little bit of over. I guess that's where I disagree with some of this. I don't think it's a little bit of overshooting. I just think it's like lying at some level, you know, I now see. if I was an activist, right, then I would maybe be more okay with lying about this sort of stuff but i'm not an activist you know right, right. and i just feel like people should explain things the way that they are and i don't know who it benefits to sort of lie to people in ways that they're no they know you're lying you know and so i don't know i just think that there's like almost like a it does no harm type of thing right going on on the left which i think is I just true in general like i don't know that's my prescription of the left in general which is that um you know like nobody's fooled by these moves where you say nothing to see here. You know, mm -hmm, everybody mm -hmm. knows that there's at least a little bit to see there. And I think it actually draws more attention when you just lie about it, because then people like Michael Schellenberger can just stand up and be like, everybody's lying. And, you know, like everyone's lying. Who's that? He's another person who lives near me. He's a guy running for the oh. governor of um, he's running to be the governor of California. He wrote San Francisco. Our friend oh, Ed Reznikov okay. wrote like a pretty good takedown of that book. Right. right. But, I mean, it's like if you want to find the most unhinged, right, like sort of carceral wow. and, and really like unsympathetic rendering of the homelessness problem in the Bay Area, like that's the book, you know. Um, gotcha. And uh, yeah, you know, I don't know. I just think it gives power to that type of demagogue when you continually point out, do things that they can just point out and say everybody's lying except for me. Right. Like, I mean, I think it's a theme in the show that we talk about quite a bit, that there's nothing quite as powerful for de these demagogue types to, to point out than people lying so that they can sort of be like, well, they won't. They're lying about to you about this obvious thing. And I'm the one who's going to tell you the truth. You know, it's how Jordan Peterson sort of became. Well, I don't know what's going on with that guy recently, but, you know, oh my God. during the during five years ago, that's sort of how Jordan Peterson rose to power. Um, OK. All right. Well. Uh, is there anything else you want to talk about, Tammy? No. Good to see you. Um, Feels pretty okay. grim right now, so it's nice to see a friend. I know. I know. Well, I don't know. It's hard to not get blackpilled at this moment, huh? I know. I'm feeling really down. Yeah. Well, you know, the good news is that here in California, the weather is great. <laughs> Stop bragging. It's like a thousand <laughs> degrees in my apartment. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, all right. Well, thank you for listening to our show. We do this every single week. Uh, next week, uh, I think we're going to have a guest on the show, right? Who Do we do we plan this? We'll, we'll, we'll let you know via Twitter midweek. <laughs> um, you can support the show at goodbye.substack.com for $5 a month. You'll get access to our Discord server, but you'll also just be helping the show. You know, um, Tammy and I are not becoming rich off of this but you know it does help um our producer um now i think on her third week right is yeah. uh may shot so thank you for may i think that uh somebody pointed out on twitter that we had used like interstitial music to separate two things and i was like yeah i know <laughs> that is a huge advance for us <laughs> Uh, they were immediately like that was me yeah, right like, whoa yeah, you know obviously. you guys are really doing a lot here uh, but um, yeah so thank you and uh, we will see you next week <laughs>